for you. All right, well, if you would, turn in your Bibles to Ezra chapter 3 tonight as we continue our trek through the Old Testament. Let me get myself there as well. And let's uh, go before the Lord in prayer here, and then we'll pick it up in verse 1. Father, uh, again, now as we turn to your word and we look to you, we ask that you would move in our hearts and our midst, uh, Father, by your spirit, Lord. Just uh, reveal to us your will, your plan, and all that you want to say to us through your word tonight, Father. For we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right. Well, we um, have been talking about going back to... Israel. The captivity is over. Uh, they were out for a total of 70 years uh, and three waves of captivity. And so uh, now uh, Cyrus had gave the order that they could go back to rebuild uh, the temple. And as we talked last time, about 50,000 or so people went back. Um, again, we don't really know how many people were in um Babylon at that time, um, I've heard estimates from a million to two to a little bit less than that, and so I don't know. But it seems like a smaller percentage of those that wanted to go back. Remember, some of them now had been there two or three generations. They had settled. They, that had been home, and going back didn't look like something that they really wanted to do. And it wasn't. Um, it was a big deal, and uh, uh, you know, to make that trip all the way back. But you know. That's where the Lord wanted them. And so those that wanted to made that, that trip. And when they came back, we talked about them last time, they kind of settled in this area uh, that's of the map here. Um, remember, when they, when they came back after about a nine-month journey, depending, you know, six to nine months, uh, we know the first group actually took a longer route, um, which I'll show you on the map a little bit later on, uh, to get there than, than uh, the next two, which will be Ezra and Nehemiah. And we'll get to those in a couple of weeks. But, uh, you know, so that long, so it's a long journey. They got back, and, and again, most of them probably settled in areas that had uh, family uh, land, you know, that had been in their family for generations and generations. And, and, uh, but, but this is approximately the areas that they settled in when they came back. And, you know, there was more that settled in different areas, but... Uh, generally speaking, that's that's when they came back. They settled in those areas and you know started trying to build their farms or get their orchards or you know get their animals and rebuild their houses, reclaim their lands, and so all that was happening uh, as they came back. And then uh, verse one of chapter three tells us, and when the seventh month had come, the children of Israel were in the cities. The people gathered together as one man it to Jerusalem. So uh, we don't know how long they were back there for. Again, there's speculation, but it's, you know, is it weeks? Has it been months? Has it been years? Uh, probably not years, but they had been in the land for a little bit to, to settle in, it seems like. And then the seventh month is a very important month in the calendar. Uh, you, most of you will probably recall because the seventh month is where they celebrate the uh, Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur, as we call it today, and also the Feast of Tabernacles. And again, just like Passover was one day, and then you had the Feast of Unleavened Bread for a week, um, the holiday in, in the fall, the seventh month, 
the Day of Atonement was one day, and then you had a seven-day period of the Feast of Tabernacles, which is where they celebrated their release from Egypt and slept in tents and all that. We've talked about that over the time. But so they came now to Jerusalem all together with one mind. Notice that, you know, they're all... They're all the same heart and the same desire to, 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 to go to Jerusalem to celebrate these feasts. And so now they're all coming from their little towns and their little cities, and they're all meeting as, as one, with one heart and one desire here in the seventh month to Jerusalem. And then, verse 2, then Jeshua, or he's also referred to as Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, and his brethren the priests, and Zerubbabel the son of Shilei, LT, the brethren, and arose and built the altar of God of Israel to offer burnt offerings on it, as it is written in the law of Moses, the man of God. So the high priest and Zerubbabel, who is the governor, um, you know, so these are the leaders of the people. Uh, they, they come into Jerusalem, then they go into the temple area, and the first thing they do before they began construction on the temple or securing the city, you know, building the walls and making sure it was, the, you know, the city was safe, uh, the leaders built an altar now, uh, and the burnt offering altar. Now, remember, this is what it looked like in, uh, when Moses, the first and that was a portable one that was with the tabernacle or that tent, and it traveled with them as they went through the wilderness. And it was in the land for a number of years as well uh, until David you know, set in motion the plans uh, for construction of the temple and, of course, Solomon actually doing the construction, and then it became a, a permanent building. But this was the first one, and again, um, not, not very big. I think it was uh, 15 by 15, uh, if I remember right, maybe not quite that big, maybe something about that size. And then the one that Solomon built in front of the, um, the temple was quite a bit bigger, and you can kind of see the comparison with a, a person there and the person there. So, you know, this was a, a bigger place, and, uh, you know, this altar of sacrifice, or it's also called the bronze altar, because it was made from bronze. Now, you may ask yourself, why would they do this? I mean, why not secure the city first to make sure it was a safe place to be? And, and remember, not too many people had gone back to Jerusalem to settle at this point. I, I, you know, I believe there's some that had housing and things there, and there was some people that would probably go in and out, but most of them had to support themselves, and so they probably went to their family lands to grow food and so forth, and because in the city, you don't, you don't do that. But, um, you know, but why not make the city secure first? Or why not build the temple first? Why build the altar first? Let me just remind you, because they understood, as it's clear in Scripture, because without the altar of sacrifice, everything else was unimportant. Um, the altar is where sin is dealt with for everyone. And the Old Covenant, the Old Testament, that bronze altar is a place where people dealt with sin. From the high priest to the lowliest guy that's sweeping the streets or whatever it is, you know, the lowliest place, whatever it is, the guy, you know, bumming on the street corner, 
you had to deal with your sin, and that was the first thing that you saw or came into, whether it was the tabernacle or the temple, and everybody could go to that, which is that place of sacrifice, because you have to deal with sin first. And it doesn't matter. Now, only the priests were allowed to go inside the temple. And yes, they had important things to do and that God had prescribed things. But only, you know, it was a handful of people, quite literally, you know, that, that did that compared to the altar. And they understood this. They understood that sin needed to be dealt with first. This place of sacrifice is where everything starts and then everything goes on and goes out from there. You know, the temple was really nothing without the altar of sacrifice because without dealing with your sin, nobody could approach the temple or go into the temple and perform those duties because the Lord said, no, you have to deal with your sin first. And they understood that. And, and so uh, that's why uh, this place of sacrifice is built first. And um, because they realize the importance of it. And that hasn't changed in our day and age. Just like with us, we must deal with our sin before anything or any relationship can happen and, and come with God. You know, people just can't one day, you know, oh, you know, uh, think that I can just kind of do it on my own or because I was born, you know, or raised in the church. You know, it makes me really part of the family of God because of association or things that I've done and uh, people that I know or because of what I learned. Uh, you, you know, sin has to be dealt with no matter what time from the beginning to the very end, sin needs to be dealt with. And of course, um, you know, we come to the one that paid and, and really um, this was in the Old Covenant foreshadowing uh, the, the finished work of Jesus on the cross. They look forward in faith for the Messiah to come. We look back in faith at the finished work of Jesus on the cross, that sacrifice for our, our, our sin. And so, again, um, that has to be dealt with first. And we need to remember that. You, you can't, if you don't deal with that, then there's no bridging the gap or coming to God or moving on or growing or doing anything spiritually or having any sort of relationship. It just becomes religion. It's, that's pretty much all it becomes. And you have to deal with sin. And they, of course, are taking care of that and are doing that. And, uh, and again, I imagine there was, you know, they came as one heart. So maybe there wasn't any in the crowd. Maybe there might have been a few, but certainly there are some in the crowd today, you know, that this may not sound practical, right? You know, we got to build the building first, make sure everything is safe, make sure everything is in order. Don't get too spiritual. Don't put the cart before the horse. Don't get too spiritual and all this stuff, you know, without having the next steps to go on to or having those things in place. And, and again, um, that's just not what the Bible teaches. And of course, what pops in your mind is, probably what popped into my mind, what, you know, Jesus told us in Matthew 6, right? Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and then everything else will be added unto you, right? Unto, so you seek God first, you, you deal with that issue, you come into relationship 
with Him by Jesus' work on the cross, His death paying for our sin, the Old Testament that was pictured in the sacrifices there, dealing with their sin, and then again, seek Him first and everything else will be taken care of. Devotions and prayer, praise, worship, all that stuff falls into place once sin is dealt with. And so they take care of the altar before they do anything else. And I like that. I think that's a great example, a great thing to see pictured in the Old Testament because sometimes we, we forget about that. We just think it was a bunch of ceremonial things. And there was a plenty of ceremony, don't misunderstand me, but they, it all had meaning behind it and they understood the meaning. All right, then, um, so they, they're building that altar and then... It, it tells us why they're doing that. It gives us some more background here and what was happening. Verse 3 says, Though fear had come upon them because of the people of those countries, that they set the altar on its bases and they offered burnt offerings on it to the Lord, both the morning and evening burnt offerings. They also kept the Feast of Tabernacles as is written and offered the daily burnt offerings in the number required by ordinance for each day. And afterwards they offered regular burnt offerings and those in the new moon and for all the appointed feasts of the Lord that were consecrated and those of everyone who willingly offered a freewill offering to the Lord. From the first day of the seventh month they began to offer burnt offerings to the Lord although the foundation of the temple of the Lord had not been laid. So, Again, the first thing they do is they, they, you know, they come back, they settle into their towns, and now they're coming to Jerusalem. And the first thing that they do is they restore and rebuild this, the altar and the temple there. Um, and I can imagine coming back there was quite a scene. First of all, probably a lot of the people had never seen Jerusalem before. Uh, you know, they were born, um, uh, you know, uh, after you know, born over in Babylon and born in captivity. Uh, at this point, the temple had been destroyed for about 50 years. So, you know, you had to be pretty old um, to, to remember uh, the temple as itself. And we'll talk about those that did remember it here in a little bit. But again, you know, they came there, they never saw the temple before, and then they get back to Jerusalem, they're probably all excited, and they see this, you know, huge pile of rocks everywhere. Because remember, when they destroyed the Babylonians, they just destroyed everything. I mean, they knocked down all the fortifications, all the houses that were there. The temple was especially destroyed because remember, Solomon had overlaid everything with gold, floor, walls, ceiling, everything. And so you could bet they were moving every stone out of the way to get every piece of gold that had fallen down in between the cracks and, and uh, peeling it all off. And so there was just nothing less but rubble. I don't know, it's kind of hard to picture what that looked like. And I've been to a number of construction sites over the years that, you know, where they've uh, done demolition on a, on a bigger building. You know, it's just this big pile of twisted steel and concrete and debris everywhere, wood beams. And, you know, they get these big, huge pieces of equipment with big jackhammers on the end of it. You know, like think of a big, uh, the biggest backhoe you could think of with a big hydraulic hammer just beating on things and knocking walls over and big dozers pushing down things. And so uh, that pile of rubble was everywhere. And, um, you know, they, uh, huge area. So they had to clear that area first and then build up, 
you know, this the altar to sacrifice. And again, you know, I love it too that they, I'm sure, you know, in their hearts where we got to get the temple built, we want to get the temple built, and we got to do all this stuff. And yet, you know, instead of, you know, thinking about the temple, the temple, and all that kind of stuff, and kind of leaving the, the place of sacrifice undone, you know, and, and uh, you know, they started out small. They, okay, we got to deal with this first, and it's okay to start out small, and we can get the altar built because that's priority one. And, and, you know, again, we'll be faithful in that, and then we'll eventually clear the rubble off, you know, and get the foundation, you know, ready for the temple and everything. But, you know, this is what we can do now, and this is what we need to do now. And even though it looks small and we haven't even started on the temple, let's just start, you know, small and be faithful in that, and then we'll continue to move on and build the temple. And, uh, you know, it's, it's kind of like the Christian life. Again, you know, we start out small, and sometimes we don't think we're making this big impact. And, and uh, you know, but if we just remain faithful in the, what the Lord's called us to and continue to do that, continue to do that, you know, then He'll continue to move and add and, and, and do all this. I, I know as a church, um, you know, we still struggle with, um, you know, having uh, the place that we'd like to have and all these things we'd like to have as a church and, and, you know, and then the Lord reminds me, uh, you know, every once in a while, I was just thinking about that. You know, most, most, if not all of the churches I can think of in, in the Pajaro Valley, and I've been here long enough now where I pretty much know them all, you know, most of those churches are over 100 years old. I mean, they're not just over 20 or 30 or 40 or 50 or 70. You know, some of them go back uh, to like 170 years. I mean, they go way back, the Presbyterian and Methodist Church, and they go way back. And, um, you know, I was thinking, you know, well, they have this big thing, and they have this school attached, or these guys have this big, nice building, and they have this, you know, great youth house and this. And, and then, you know, I, I started thinking, you know, they've had congregations in this community, most of them for over 100 years. And some of them a lot longer, some maybe a little bit less. And I think, you know, um, so, you know, even though we've been here coming up, what, 18, 18 years or something like that? Yeah, it's this month, 18 years, yeah. Um, you know, and I think that's a long time and, you know, this and that. But I look at everybody else and I think, okay, you know, it's, just be faithful and we'll see what the Lord does and what He does in the future. And notice it, back to the story here, it wasn't easy. You know, they were afraid. And they were certainly outnumbered because there was a lot of other people that had settled in the land. You know, uh, other people, the, the Edomites, the Moabites, the Ammonites, the Amorites, the Samaritans that have come in from, that were resettled, as we'll talk about in a little bit, from the Assyrian Empire. I'm sure people from Egypt came up and the deserts area. So, you know, there was a number of people that had taken over this, this vacant land, and, and they were afraid of them. And they were outnumbered, certainly, and we could see that there was threats. But they were faithful. They didn't allow them that to stop them and again i think we have to ask ourselves that same question how faithful are we in times of adversity you know do we cover away and or cower away and run for cover in fear or um you know are we faithful lord you know yep it's, it's troubling and it's difficult and it's hard and there we're fearful of this happening or this happening but 
yet I'm, I'm not going to let that stop me from doing what you've called me to do, and in their case, for, for making these sacrifices and these offerings to you, because I need to have that connection with you, and I'm not going to let anything get in the way of that. And I like that, and I think that's a great encouragement. Outnumbered and afraid, and it was a lot of work, and it seemed like a long, hard road, and yet they continued uh, at this point not to 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 give up or uh, allow those things to intimidate them. So that's step one, and then step two, verse seven. They also gave money to the masons and carpenters and food, drink, and oil to the people of Sidon and Tyre to bring cedar logs from Lebanon to the sea to Joppa according to the permission which they had from Cyrus, king of Persia. So the next thing they do is much as like David and Solomon did, they needed timber to help rebuild the temple and, and of course, the city. And so what they're doing now in rebuilding the temple is they're going to the same place that, that David and Solomon went because most of the timber was in the mountains to the north in Lebanon. Uh, there wasn't good timber in Israel. It hasn't been. There probably never will. I don't know. It grows up on the, great, on the mountains of cedars up there in Lebanon. So they pretty much do the same thing. They, they pay them. You know, they barter with them, give them food just like Solomon did, and they float them down and they carry them in the 35 miles from Joppa to Jerusalem, another difficult task. So they're, they're getting the building materials that they need uh, from out of the area dealt with first, and they're doing that. And then verse 8 tells us, Now in the second month of the second year, Uh, of the of their coming to the house of God in, at Jerusalem, Zerubbabel the son of Shealtiel, uh, Jeshua the son of Jehozadak, and the rest of their brethren and priests and Levites and all those who had come from the captivity to Jerusalem began work and appointed the Levites from twenty years old and above to oversee the work of the house of the Lord. Verse nine tells us in. Jeshua, uh, the sons, his sons and brethren, and Kemdael, and his sons, and the sons of uh, Judah, arose as one to oversee those working on the house of God, and the sons of Hanadab with their sons and their brethren, the Levites. So basically, the verses eight uh, uh, and nine here. They're talking about the guys who would be like the construction managers and probably did a, a lot of the work too. So these guys, you know, were kind of in, in, in charge of making sure that everything got into place and the, the material was coming in, if it, if it was logs or if it was stones or whatever. And so, you know, these guys were in charge of really the construction. And I imagine they, they worked as well and there wasn't very many people and they didn't have much money. So, you know, I imagine they played a number of roles here, but it kind of just lists the guys that were kind of in charge of the rebuild of the temple here. And then verse 10, When the builders laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, the priests stood in their apparel with trumpets, and the Levites, the sons of Asaph, with cymbals, to praise the Lord according to the ordinance of King David of Israel. And they sang responsibly, praising and giving thanks to the Lord. For he is good, for his mercy endures forever towards Israel. Then all the people shouted with a great shout when they praised the Lord, because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. 
So again, uh, you know, um, there's a great verse up there. Uh, you know, uh, the, imagine these guys um, were just so excited. Um, they, 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 this is how difficult it was. I, I believe, you know, they had to clear all the rubble now for the foundation site where the, where the temple was going to be. They had to, they had to just get everything out of there. Imagine just removing all kinds of broken pieces of stone and wood and burned down stuff and all kinds of heaps and piles of stuff. And so they had to clear all that away and they had to lay a new foundation. And when they finally laid the foundation, um, they stopped and they just had this great time of worship and rejoicing in the Lord. And, you know, most of the time that happens when you complete a building, right? (laughs) Usually when the foundation is done, everybody's like, great, I can see all the concrete. When's the building going up, right? Not too many people get too excited about the foundation. But I I imagine it was so much work just to get the foundation cleared and then the, the stones put in place that they just stopped and go, okay, we got that done. And, you know, then they just got out their instruments and the the you know the Levites and the priests put on their Sunday best, we'd say, and they got their instruments out and they kind of sang responsively, uh, responsive, not responsively. They sang responsibly, uh, responsibly, but they sang responsively in response. In other words, like some group would say, uh, uh, "For He is good," and then others would sing, "For His you know His mercy endures forever towards Israel." You know, for the, you know, he is good. And there was, you know, like, uh, you know, you've sang songs at church where the men sing one part and then the women kind of sing a part. And you've probably been part of that before. I don't know. We used to do that a long time ago. That's kind of one of the older things maybe we don't do much anymore in church. But, you know, the idea is they were, you know, singing back and the instruments were playing and everybody was just, you know, so excited, uh, you know, and, and, and worshiping what he has done and what he is doing. Now, let's go back to that slide that I got out of order there, just so that you might know, you know, it's, we're not talking about a big area. You know, Ezekiel Temple is a big picture. Uh, Herod's Temple, which is the remodeled temple that they're building right now, is that top right one. Solomon's Temple is the one um, uh, right there below that one, and then the what the tabernacle size used to be. So remember, the, the, the foundation that they're doing, that whole like outer square area is the whole court, but the building itself is only on the inside, which is about the same size as the, 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 the tabernacle, which is really, you know, uh, and the dimensions are there. It doesn't tell us exactly if they built it the same exact size as Solomon, but you know, it's like 75 feet by 150 feet. We're not talking much of a foundation in today's building terms. Um, so that's why when I think they did all this, it was, it was a huge deal. And you know, the work had begun and not big by anybody's standards and not much progress by maybe a lot of standards, but the work had begun and they wanted to recognize that and worship the Lord, even though there was a long way to go. I think there's a great lesson for us to learn on that too, because, you know, sometimes we can get weary and well-doing. And if we just stop once in a while and just thank the Lord for what we have and what He's doing in our lives and what He's done and where we are today, you know, the long road 
doesn't seem to be as hard and long when we reflect on those things. And they took the time to do that. Hey, let's just take time. Yeah, there's a lot to do. We haven't even touched the wall. Everything's a mad law. You know, they could have just gone on. And, oh, man, we only got the foundation. It could have been a big bummer day. Uh, all that work and we just got the foundation. But they chose to rejoice and praise of what had happened and what the Lord was going to do or what Lord has done and then what he's going to do. And sometimes it's great just to sit back and go, I forgot, Lord. You know, I keep thinking there's a long, hard road ahead and there's still all this to do. But let me just reflect where we are right now and where you've brought me this far and rejoice in your goodness and your love as they did there. I think that encourages us uh, so much uh, on, on the long, hard roads uh, that we travel at times. And that's what they did here. Now we get a little bit more to finish up the chapter here of what was happening in this rejoicing. But, verse 12 says, many of the priests and Levites and the heads of the father's houses, old men who had seen the first temple, wept with a loud voice when the foundation of this temple was laid before their eyes. Yet many shouted aloud for joy, so that the people could not discern the noise of the of the shouts of joy from the noise of the weeping of the people. For the people shouted with a loud shout, and the sound was heard afar off. So now we get a little bit more of the picture here. There was people in the crowd, and these are the older people. So now, again, this temple had been destroyed for about 50 years or so at this point. So the older people, you know, maybe they saw it as a young child, and maybe five or ten, maybe even a little bit older. But remember, you know, that was a long, hard journey. And so I imagine a lot of the older people wouldn't have tried it. Um, but obviously, they were inspired to go back. They wanted to go back. So even though that would be a very difficult per journey for an older person, they did because they wanted to go back home because they knew what home was. But when they saw this, again, um, those older people began to weep. Now, it doesn't really tell us why. Well, they knew what the glory of Solomon's temple was, and then they saw what, was, what they had. And, you know, again, it doesn't say like, well, man, compared to what we had, this isn't much. And maybe that was part of it. But I, I can't help but to think it was more like, boy, this is what we had, and this is what we have now. And how did we get from here, this beautiful wonder of the ancient world, Solomon's temple, I mean, it was one of the wonders of the ancient world, seven ancient wonders of the ancient world, you know, beautiful, magnificent to this. I mean, how far we have fallen, you know, Lord, how much we have rebelled and sinned that we're here at this point. You know, we had this and because of our own stubbornness and unwillingness to follow and listen to you, now we're, we're back over here. And I can't help but to think that maybe they were kind of brokenhearted at, uh, out of what they had lost because of their heart and the way they did things. And again, um, uh, that very well could be. And again, whichever way it was, whether they didn't think it was much or they were pretty sad over how far they had fallen, it's just like today, right? There are those who rejoice in what the Lord is doing today, and there are those who are looking back at once 
at what was in sorrow. And uh, the question is, which one are we going to be? You know, there's, there's people that are, oh, I remember back in the day when things were like this and that, that happened and this happened. And they're living 10, 15, 20, 30, 40 years ago. You know, and what's the Lord doing today? And then you look back, oh man, it's not like it was back then. No, it wasn't. But, you know, you can look back at sorrow or we can, you know, rejoice in what the Lord's doing today because he's still doing a work today. And maybe it wasn't, you know, what it once was in your own mind or what it once was back at some certain point or something, but he's still working and he still wants to do a work and we can choose whether we're going to rejoice or or be sorrowful and regretful and all this kind of having all this. They couldn't distinguish between the two. They were so loud, but, you know, we have a choice of what we're going to, what we're going to do. Which do we choose? Well, chapter four. So the construction is continuing and verse 1 tells us this. Now, when the adversaries of Judah and Benjamin had heard the descendants of the captivity were building the temple of the Lord God of Israel, they came to Zerubbabel and the heads of the father's house and said to them, Well, let us build with you, for we seek your God as you do. And we have sacrificed to him since the days of Ahaz... Uh, Ahaz... 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 Actually, he said this a few times so I can get it right. And of course, when it comes down to it, I can't. Uh, as our had had dad Don, you got it, <laughs> king of Assyria, who brought us here. But Zerubbabel and Jeshua and the rest of the heads of the father's house of Israel said to them, You may do nothing with us to build a house for our God, but we alone will build to the Lord God of Israel, as King Cyrus, the king of Persia, had commanded us. Now, what's all this about? Now, remember back to our, to our map where they kind of came back and settled, and you can see where it says Samaria up there in the upper left-hand point. And again, this is eventually these people will be referred to in the New Testament as Samaritans. This is where, we've talked about this before, uh, again, um, these are the people that were brought in from when the Assyrians conquered the northern tribe of, uh, of Israel, all those groups up there, which was the most of the people of Israel, and because the, the kingdom had split in two, their capital was Samaria, that's why they're called Samaritans, and they brought people from all over Babylon and all over that Fertile Crescent to resettle there. And they took the Jews and resettled them someplace else. So these guys had been in the land since 2 Kings chapter 17, which is about 300 or so years. Now notice that verse 1 calls them adversaries. Now, at first, when you read this, it doesn't seem like they're adversaries, right? But the Bible's telling us ahead of time what, what they really were. Because certainly they didn't have the one heart, as we talked about in the beginning of chapter 3. These guys weren't of one heart. We know that. We know that they worshipped God, but they also worshipped their other idols. And again, you can read that in 2 Kings chapter 17, near the end of the chapter, it talks about when the Assyrian king moved these people into the land there, that wild animals and lions and 
tigers and bears, oh my, were, were giving them a lot of problems, and so they attributed to, they didn't know how to worship the God of that land, so they grabbed one of the priests from Israel, which weren't really priests, right? They, were, they weren't the priests from the temple. They were the priests that, uh, um, uh, you know, what's his name uh, with the J, the king? How can they go out of my mind that, that made the, the idols in Samaria? Um, it'll pop into my mind. But anyway, he'd made priests. But they said, oh, you need to offer some sacrifices to the Lord too. So you got to do this to kind of appease him. And then once you appease him, you can you know, do whatever you want to do. And that's literally what they did. And so that's all they really knew. Um, Jeroboam, sorry, mine just uh, popped into my mind. So Jeroboam, you know, had set up his own priest. They weren't the priests like we're talking about here. And so these guys worshiped. Yes, they, they knew how to offer some sacrifices, to, but they also sacrificed to others. They did their own thing as well. And so um, we know that about them, and these guys obviously knew about them as well. But think about this now, because it could have easily have gone the other way. Here you are. You have this huge building project that you want to do. You, you want to rebuild the temple. You want to rebuild Jerusalem. You want to get the walls done. I mean, you have a huge project ahead of you, and you have very few people and you have very little resources, and then you have this group of people now coming up saying, hey, we want to help out. Well, they could provide the resources we need, whether it's the building materials or the labor or finances or all part of those things. And, you know, wow, you know, it might make you sit back and go, wow, you know, okay, well, they got their issues, I know that, but they know, you know, a little bit about God. You know, they know who he is in a general sense. And so, and we could really use the help here uh, in, in, in every way. And so, you know, let's just kind of work them in, right? Uh, let's just kind of take their offer. I mean, it'll really, be, really benefit us at the end and we can settle any differences maybe we have with them at some point. But they said, no, this is not something that, that you're to be a part of because you don't have the same relationship with the God of Israel that we do. And I think there's a couple of important lessons we need to learn out of this. One is not everyone that presents themselves as friends to Christians or to believers or to the church or who, you know, present themselves as co-laborers uh, 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 may not be what they represent. They might just know the talk, but they don't really have any walk with that. And the leaders, of course, recognized this and knew their history. And they said, uh, thanks, but no thanks. And, uh, and, and that was a great, important stand that they made. Because this is a real problem that, that happens today in, in churches, right? Uh, here's the churches, you know, uh, the church always needs people to help. Because the church runs on volunteers and people serving. That's just how it is and how it's been and how it should be for the most part, I believe, the way it is anyway. So here you are at a church and we need help in children's ministry, let's say, or in the youth group or on worship or this or that or whatever you need. And then, you know, uh, somebody offers 
Uh, oh, you know, I could help out with children. Oh, I know my neighbor's good with children. Or, and they offer, you know, I was talking about church and they, yeah, well, I can come over and help with that. Or, hey, I know this guy that's a good musician that plays down at the coffee house on Friday night or something like that. And, you know, let's get them in to help out. And, uh, you know, uh, yeah, I know they're not Christians. They're not really believers. But, hey, you know, um, uh, you know, uh, you know, but but they'll they'll be uh, they'll help they'll they'll fill uh, that help fill that space that we need help in. But we need to understand is you never just want to in, in church fill a spot with a warm body because it's not right. First of all, it's not, and it will never end up good. Uh, they need to be a partner in fellowship. They need to be a believer. They need to be on the same page. And not just someone who kind of knows something about God or went to church a bunch when they were a child maybe but haven't been. And yet, you know, here you go. Let's do this and let's plug them in there because they'll be of some help. And having some help is better than having no help. And uh, we just need to be careful of that. Um, uh, you know, I, I, I like it because our kids, you know, have gone to Christian schools and, you know, and Annabelle's work for one of them and, and the other one, um, you know, there's, um, we know something about their hiring practice, but, you know, one of the things is they ask, uh, you know, at the schools, for example, is, you know, what's your testimony? Tell us how you came to Jesus. You know, what church do you attend? What do you do? So we, we know there's a connection. You're not, a, well, you know, what's your, you know, uh, oh, yeah, I'm a Christian. You go to church, you know, check a box. Yeah, well, does that mean like last year or last week or 10 years ago? Or you're a Christian because your grandma took you to church or because you used to go to church? Or do you actually have a personal relationship? Just like, you know, you would do in the church for teaching the children or any other kind of position. They have to not be a person... Uh, you know, just to fill a spot. Uh, because, again, uh, what are they teaching or what are they doing in that spot? If they're not together, if they're not part of the church, if they're not equally yoked and believers, it's just, it's, first it's going to send the wrong message and it's just going to end in disaster. And they understood that. Um, and, again, uh, you know, cults try to do this all the time. I know some years ago the Moonies were really big trying to, trying to get into the Christian churches to be accepted. And so they were helping out and they were willing to, you know, give money and send a bunch of workers to projects and do something so they can kind of legitimize, you know, what they were doing. I know the Mormons used to do that a lot too, and there's other groups that still kind of want to do that. And, um, you know, uh, we just need to be careful of that. People want to blend the gospel with wisdom and worship of the world in some way, and it just never will go together again. Um, and if a person does that, they'll face very little persecution if they just allow the compromise, right? Hey, we'll let them in, we'll work on them. Maybe they'll, you know, it's like people do when they date somebody and they're not really a believer, they're not really a solid believer. Well, you know, I'll work on them and then I'll get them to be a real solid believer. And then, you know, you know, I just, it, you know, that's just not how it should be. Because um, how many times do people just act one way when they're dating and then when they get married, they, they just go back to who they were, you know, all willing to sacrifice and do these things uh, at this, for this period of time, but that's not really who I am. And, and the same thing is true, you know, all the way up and down uh, the scope of the Christian walk here. 
And again, blending these things would have caused very little problems and that compromise you know, would have seemingly helped in so many ways and it wouldn't have allowed the persecution that we're going to read next. And because they said, no, thank you, verse 4 tells us, then the people of the land tried to discourage the people of Judah. They troubled them in building and hired counselors against them to frustrate their purpose all the days of Cyrus, king of Persia, even until Darius, the king of the reign of Darius, the king of Persia. So now we know why they were called adversaries, because when they didn't get what they wanted, <laughs> well, well, really, you're going to be that way? Then they hired lawyers. Oh, we don't like what you're doing now. And that's what they did. They hired lawyers, and we'd say today they started to sue you. Oh, you're not going to hire me because you don't like my person and what I believe and my beliefs? Well, that's discrimination. You can't discriminate, you know, right? How many times have you heard that, you know, song be sung here? And, the, you know, and trying to discourage them. And they discouraged them through a couple of kings, actually. And, you know, it was hard. You know, it, they... They're, they're pressing in really hard here to stop the work now, to discourage them. And this is what they do. And, and verses 6 through 16 will just tell us exactly what they did. And read it along with me here. In the reign of Azarius, in the beginning of his reign, they wrote an accusation against the inhabitants of Judah and Jerusalem. In the days of Artaxerxes also, Basham, Mildrith, Tabal, and the rest of their companions wrote to Artaxerxes, the king of Persia, and the letter was written in Aramaic script and translated into the Aramaic language. Raham, the commander of Shemeshael, Mishael I, the scribe, wrote the letter against Jerusalem to King Artaxerxes in this fashion. So here's the letter that he's writing now to the, the Persian king. From Rehom the commander and Shim Shiaiah the scribe and the rest of the companions, representative of the Dinites, the Asarites, you can get that, the Tarpalites and the people of Persia and Uruk and Babylon and Shusham and the Dehavites and the Elamites and the rest of the nations whom the great noble Osnapper took captive and settled in the cities of Samaria and the remainder beyond uh, the river and so forth. And this is the copy of the letter that was sent to him. To King Azarius, this uh, from your servants, the men of the region beyond the river and so forth, let it be known to the king, now this is the important part, that the Jews who came up from you have come to us at Jerusalem and they are building the rebellious and evil city and are finishing its walls and repairing the foundations. Uh, totally half-truth and twisted truth, right? They're not even touching the walls and the only foundation they repaired is the temple, right? Let it be known to the king that if this city is built and the walls completed, they will, pay not, they will not pay tax, tribute, or custom to the king's treasury, and the king's treasury will be diminished. Man, if you let these guys build anything, they're going to rob you blind, and you're going to lose out big time, right? And now because you receive support from the palace, it was not proper for us to see the king's dishonor. Therefore, we have sent and informed the king that a search be made in the book of the records of your fathers, and you will find in the book 
of the records and know that this city is a rebellious city, harmful to the kings and and provinces, and they have incited sedition within the city in former times for which cause the city was destroyed. Verse 16, we inform the king that if the city is rebuilt and its walls are complete, and the result will be that you will have no dominion beyond the river. (laughs) So again here, we see that there is half-truths and twisted truths that distort the facts are all part of the persecution. Um, Let me see here. So when it says beyond the river, sorry, I'm skipping ahead a few slides. So what they consider beyond the river is beyond the Euphrates River. And if you look at us on the left-hand side, pretty much that's all the group from Jerusalem going up into what would be like uh, Syria today. So you're going to lose all this money from that whole area if Jerusalem, which is way down there at the very bottom, you know, does any kind of rebuilding. I mean, that's just how ridiculous it was and how true, you know, how twisted the truths were and distorted the facts were. And, um, and uh, you know, how, 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 you know, the persecution was. Now, if you back up a couple of slides here, I, I, we talked about this on Sunday. And if you were there, you might remember I started talking about the Sacramento Bee article uh, that was in the paper uh, on Sunday. Um, and it talked about these 72 hate groups operated in California last year. And here's where and what they are. And we started, I mentioned this a little bit um, uh, on Sunday, uh, we were talking about it. And then after you know, church, we started talking about it a little bit more. And, um, you know, uh, and, 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 you know, because in, in mentioned among neo-Nazis and all kinds of crazy anti, uh, you know, a white power kind of groups, uh, you know, these very far out crazy are listed, you know, a good, uh, couple of handfuls of Christian organizations, uh, which I know of a few that are, that are good, right? And I don't know all of them. But again, they're considered uh, hate groups. And, I, and, and you know what it is, is that they just twist what we believe in the Bible. And because of that, just like this letter twists what they were actually doing and gives half-truths, the, you know, Southern you know, who, who published this, you know, the Seventh Poverty Law Center, you know, that comes, uh, puts this, this list together. They're one of the biggest ones of that, that was started by, again, I talked about Martin Luther King, and, you know, now it's something completely different than what he started. But again, you know, it, it talks about these Christian groups that are in here that are hate groups because of their stance on the homosexual issue, pretty much. And, you know, again, as we talked about it after church, we we're, were talking like I said, we don't hate that group. And I know I could imagine the Christian groups that are on that list don't hate those people. We don't hate any group, any color, any nationality, anything from any social status. Any true believer, any true Christian doesn't hate any of those groups because we'll be opposing what Scripture said, which is... He loves everybody, and he wants everybody to come to know him. And we are all sinners saved by grace. We all have sin in our lives, as we talked about, that needs to come and be put 
uh, taken, dealt with before we can enter into that relationship with him, as we just talked about. And so that's all we say. And, and yet, because we say that and the words get twisted and what Scripture says, you know, we become these hateful people. But that's just not true. And I started thinking about it after we talked. And, I, you know, I remember, uh, you know, I've been involved in church. And I, and I could think of one. I remember uh, a, a homosexual couple coming into church. And you knew what they were right away. I mean, it, was, it wasn't easy to see, but it wasn't like, oh, man, well, and, and everybody starts talking and whispering and all this kind of stuff. No, no. You know, we, we greet them like we greet anybody else. And you know what? Um, uh, after weeks going by and them coming and everything, we just saw great changes in their hearts, just like what happened with me and happened with Everybody else or most everybody else in the church, you know, came to know Jesus and, you know, asked the forgiveness of their sin and their sin was forgiven and, and they were filled with the Holy Spirit and their lives were changed. And I, I'm just, you know, thinking one off the top of my head. And of course, that story is repeated, I don't know how, you know, how many times and most of you can, you know, share your own testimony and know testimony of others. But that's the heart of the, the true Christian, we want everybody to come to know Jesus. We want them to hear the gospel. We don't hate them and say, oh, we're going to hate you because you're sin. No. All sin separates from God. And sin is sin. And you might struggle you know, with, with homosexuality or somebody might struggle with heterosexuality and, 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 and too much or, or lying or gossiping or any of the other bag full of sins that there are out there. We're all a bunch of sinners and we all need salvation and we all need you know, the, the blood of Jesus to pay for those sins. And so we don't hate everybody. We want everybody to, to come to know that. And, and yet, because of what we stand on and then we're calling it a sin, then it, was, it gets twisted and twisted around and, oh, that you hate us, a sin, and you know, it gets just... And it becomes crazy, and of course, you know, people only want to focus on what they want to hear, and it gets twisted around, and of course, you know, then you come out on some list like this. But that is truly not what Scripture says, and not what, you know, what the majority of everybody, well, the, that I know of, you know, wants everybody to come to know the Lord. And that's exactly what's happening here. You know, they just want to worship the Lord and everything. These guys didn't get what they wanted, and they wanted to be recognized in some way. And so because they weren't, they just twisted around, and all these lies were said about them, and to discourage them and halt the work. And it doesn't stop back then. It still happens today in all sorts of different ways. And so that's exactly what they're doing. Well, let's finish up and read the, the answer to the king here. Verse 17, The king sent an answer to Ram the commander, and uh, she, am I, Shai, I should say that right, you got his name, the scribe, and the rest of the companions who dwelt in Samaria, do dwell in Samaria, and to the remainder beyond the river, peace and so forth. The letter which you sent to us has been clearly read before me, and I gave the command and the search has been made and it was found that the city in former times has revolted against kings and rebellion and sedition has been festered or fostered in it and there also have been mighty kings over Jerusalem who have ruled over the region beyond the river and tax and tribute and custom were paid to them 
Now give the command to make these men cease, that the city may not be built until the command is given by me. Take heed now that you do not fail in this. Why should damage increase to the hurt of the king? And so what we have here is the king believes all these false accusations. And again, they had a a passive rebellion. They did. They rebelled against the Babylonians. Um, you know, they did have that that history of rebelling against them. And, and Nebuchadnezzar finally saying, you know, I try to work with you guys, but that's it. You know, that's the last straw and destroyed the city. And so there, it was true to some degree. There was some truth in there. But again, uh, these guys weren't them, those people. And they had come back, you know, by Cyrus and they were just trying to serve the Lord. And again, this opposition, because they stood up for what was right and what should happen. And this great opposition uh, comes against them. And again, you know, they believe the lie and the twisted story. And now, um, you know, just think of that. You know, it happens to us too. You know, the boss believes what someone told him about you and supposedly something twisted the story or a friend or a family member, you know, tells somebody of this and they got half the story wrong or they twisted what, you know, what should have been and then they go tell him and then, you know, all of a sudden you're kind of in hot water or people looking at you funny because of this and, and then, you know, especially those who like to dig into our past and remember, you know, I, I know what they were like before they became these holy Joes and all this kind of stuff and, you know, they just use all that as ammunition against to discourage us today in the same way. But here, the lies and deception put it to a halt. And if you look at our timeline there, you can see where the return is and the te- temple foundation is laid. And it's not about 18 years later that the construction gets to start again, which we'll talk about next time. But I mean, the lies and the deception and the discouragement were pretty successful. But in the end, the Lord has the final word. And He will see through and He's going to send those prophets, Haggai and Zechariah, that are going to be there to encourage Him during this time. Uh, you know, where they can't seem to get much done. And then when they start again, Haggai is going to come and talk. And and you can see the prophets kind of down there that are going to be working in that time. And the Lord's going to encourage them and get them back on track. But, but again, you know, here, you know, just trying to do what's right, just trying to serve the Lord, doing it in the right order and not bringing in, you know, influences of the world to water down what, what should happen, and, you know, and, and, and compromising, and they stood their ground, and then the persecution comes, and it seems, you know, pretty difficult and pretty uh, bleak um, after they're on such a roll. But again, the Lord is going to have His final word, and it will be completed as He said it would, and we'll read about that next time. Father, we just, again, come before you, Lord, and we just, again, thank you that the great example these were guys were to get things right, you know, dealing with sin, and that's just so important and primary and, and really what has to happen first. And, of course, that's the rub why people, you know, call Christians and believers and they get listed in hate groups and haters and all this kind of stuff is because... 
Um, because of that, you know, people love their sin. They want to live in their sin and they don't want anybody to tell them anything other than what they think and what they believe. And if you don't agree with me, then you're a hater. And that is becoming more and more prevalent today. But Lord, help us to stand firm on that. You know, we understand. And, and Lord, we know that there's many out there that even have that hard-headed stance that the Lord, you know, you're working on them. We don't just give up on them and throw in the towel. We just trust that your spirit is working in their lives and shining the light there in different ways and places and through different people and situations and circumstances, Lord. And, and so, um, you know, uh, that has to be dealt with. And they need to know that. And just as we did, because without Jesus, then, well, it's just a religious or a social club or religious activities. There's just nothing really to it. There's no meat on the bone, so to speak, and there's no relationship with you. It's just kind of all hollow, empty works. And uh, Lord, something that you don't recognize, something that never gets a person into eternity nor part of your family. Um, and so, Father, uh, we thank you that they realize that by setting up the altar first and, and then standing firm in, in the midst of what would seemingly be like good help and, and could help out of some binds, but they stood firm, Lord. And uh, yes, it brought some persecution and it cost them something, but in the end, it's, it's, it, it's, they're doing right by you, and in the end, you will always get the victory. And help us to remember that and take those little moments uh, of, you know, victories and, and reflecting on you and just, you know, singing out the praise of how good you are in those times of those long, hard roads, even in the little victories and the little times, Lord. Important for us to be encouraged in that way. And again, we'll see how you'll work everything out as we look at the chapter next time, Father, the chapters next time, because you always do. And uh, you wanted this done, and it will be done, Father, but there were some important lessons and some things to learn along the way, just like with us, Father. So again, bless these things to our hearts, for we ask this in Jesus' name.